0: Hey Brian Hey Dan And hey listeners And welcome to the 91st episode of The Goods A film podcast Man Brian we are near the end of July as we record this How are you doing so far this week? Hey, pretty good. I started a grad school
1: program in media production, so hopefully that will only improve my podcasting abilities. And you know what? I was listening back to the most recent episode to drop, which I think was our Great Race episode. And we talked about how there had been like one degree day in the week and how, oh, it was brutal and Man, now I'm eating my words because (laughs) this past week it's been like every day, like 97 degrees or higher. Yeah. Very hot.
0: We went to a water park and just felt like we had been sitting in an oven full blast for an hour when we came out. It's like we had put on sunscreen, so it wasn't that we were sunburned, but we just felt bakes on our skin. Just so hot. And that was even with getting in and out of the water, too, so. Yeah, man, got brutal this past week for sure. 100% agree on that.
1: Yeah, pour one out for the folks in England who, I guess, don't have air conditioning
0: because it's always raining there. Apparently they've had it pretty rough. Right. It's like their summer has been similar to the one that we've had, which is just like catastrophic for them since they basically don't have normal summers, usually. Anyways, we are here to discuss a film. In fact, three films. I would say. And those are George of the Jungle from 1997, Dudley Do-Right from 1999, and George of the Jungle 2 from 2003. Quite the trifecta tonight. Yes, yeah. Yeah, hitting hard with these uh, cinematic masterpieces, as we'll see here. But no, I... this was a, it was a fun crop of movies and um, they they kind of have an interesting lineage here that we can talk about. So one is that, I don't know, I, I watched um, Men in Black a couple months ago and I got really nostalgic. It's like they don't make movies like this that often anymore. I mean, there's, there's one or two each year, but they're like not the biggest movies of the year because the only blockbusters now are... Marvel movies and then occasionally something else like a Fast and Furious or this year it was Top Gun. But there's like a lost breed or a lost era of the live action family blockbuster that I kind of miss. It's been replaced I guess with the animated movie. It's like now the the movies that you go see with your kids are the the Dreamworks and Illumination and Pixar and Disney CGI films. Right?
1: But 90s blockbusters certainly had a style. It's like you got to have a dedicated single for the credits that they used there. You know, like Don't Want to Miss a Thing from Armageddon or the Will Smith raps in Men in Black and Wild Wild West. Or,
0: you know, that
1: that song in Titanic, whatever that was called.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Shout out to a column I know I've mentioned before here called The Number Ones on the website Stereogum. Where uh, this critic Tom Brehan uh, is going through Billboard history and writing an history and analysis of every song to top the Billboard charts ever, and doing it chronologically, like one week at a time. And he recently talked about the Will Smith Wild Wild West track and did like a whole history of the. He called it recap rap. So rap songs that come at the end of movies as sing- as their single, but basically tell the story of the movie that you just watched in rap form. And my favorite bit was Tom Hanks actually did one of these in the mediocre comedy Dragnet. And it's kind of bizarre hearing Tom Hanks at age like 20 something try to rap. So it's pretty funny. I recommend you go look that one up, Brian. I definitely will. But I think the movies we're talking about today have an even more specific lineage than just the the live action family blockbuster. And that is live action adaptations of cartoons. So there was a slate of movies made in the 90s and 2000s that were all live action versions of beloved cartoons. Typically cartoons from like the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and stuff. Um, so, like, I guess when the parents had got to the nostalgia phase and you could kind of reboot it for the kids. And in particular, there was a glut of them the decade between 1994 and 2003. So here's just a list of cartoons that, that received live action adaptations uh, in that decade, that, that 10 year span. We had Dennis the Menace, The Flintstones, George of the Jungle and Dudley Do-Right, which we're going to talk about tonight. Mr. Magoo, Inspector Gadget, Rocky and Bullwinkle, Josie and the Pussycats, which I really want to see. It's kind of a cult hit. And it had some tracks written by Adam Schlesinger on the soundtrack. Um, The Scooby-Doo with Matthew Lillard as Shaggy. Um, And then shortly after that, we had Fat Albert. And then we got to the Alvin and the Chipmunks era, which kind of continued that for a few years, too. So,
1: yeah. Right. I've got to say, I don't understand the instinct to reboot a cartoon As live action, not in the era we're talking about and still really not today with all the Disney remakes that they're doing. It's like cartoons allow you to do certain things that are not possible in live action. Like, in my mind, that's a reason for
0: choosing to make something a cartoon. That's interesting. I wonder if part of it is, hey, we're going to do that cartoony stuff, but we're going to do it in real life. Or maybe it's like pushing various synapses in our brain together. It's like, hey, you like Brendan Fraser. He's a big, schlubby, cute fella. Wouldn't it be funny if he also was George of the Jungle, a thing that you watched as a kid and feel nostalgia for? Go make your kids come see this movie. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I think there's some of that. It does fall apart under close scrutiny, I think. And in particular, I haven't seen any of those Disney remakes that I've actually liked have you have you liked any of those disney live action ones no
1: i honestly haven't even seen that many i saw the cinderella one which was okay then what did i see jungle book it was all right
0: and beauty and the beast i didn't care for yeah i saw beauty and the beast i saw parts of the lion king one and the aladdin one um i i did see jungle book I thought Jungle Book was interesting because it, it at least tried to, like, make it darker and a little scarier, which I was like, OK, you're at least doing something different with it. But nobody's had any good things to say about him. But I'll, maybe I'll catch up with it. But. Right. So something I
1: didn't realize until I saw that movie was that the original Jungle Book is such a sausage fest. <laughs> There's like no female characters at all in Jungle
0: Book until the very, very end. Oh, man. Interesting. When the girl walks by and then Mowgli leaves. I have to imagine that was at least partially intentional, because isn't that ending like a metaphor for puberty? Yeah. Playing in his fantasy animal world, and then he sees a girl, and he leaves that all behind. Yep. Tropical Winnie the Pooh or something. So the three movies that we're going to be talking about tonight are all inspired by, based on, cartoons that came from the brain of American animator... Jay Ward. So uh, Jay Ward was this influential television animator from the early 60s, I think, is when he had his breakout. Uh, He might have done something in the late 50s. And then for a few years there, he was making uh, TV shows. And um, the one that he is most famous for is The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle and Friends, although that show had many different titles throughout the years, apparently, which kind of had the format of Rocky and Bullwinkle, the moose and the squirrel, or I guess I have that reversed, the squirrel and the moose, right? Rocky's the squirrel. But they're, they're this duo, and they have these little adventures, and in between their segments, the show would have shorts about other characters and other types of stories. So that's actually the origin of Dudley do who's one of the ones we're going to talk about tonight. Is His character was invented for one of these kind of intermittent shorts in the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Um, you might also know Peabody. So he would there was like a recurring short where Peabody was this smart dog with a bow tie, and he would like share some history fact. And then another recurring bit was Fractured Fairy Tales, where it would be like some... Slightly askew version of a fairy tale told. So Brian, how much Jay Ward have you seen? So
1: growing up, I saw a good amount of these shows. We would rent episode collections from Blockbuster. I think I think that's how I consumed it. But I definitely saw a fair few of them. I remember Dudley Do Right and George of the Jungle. Tom Slick, who's a race car driver. There's a lot of these, and I have an admiration for the format of basically creating a whole cavalcade of cartoon characters, each with their own replicatable premises. Like, each one's got its own little concept that you can generate episodes from, and, you know, it works at scale. It's like, okay, this is what a Tom Slick is, this is what a Dudley Doright is, go and come up with 12 ideas and we'll make them into bits. But at the time, watching them as a little kid, I was struck by how little I understood of what was going on and like all the jokes that they make, especially all the jokes that the narrator makes, because like all of these things have a narrator and he does like all this high-level wordplay And my thought at the time was, I'll bet this made sense to kids in the 60s. But now I don't think that. I think it was for adults, even in the 60s.
0: I read that Rocky and Bullwinkle, which I always thought of as a Saturday morning cartoon, um, actually aired in primetime, like The Flintstones. I don't think it was quite so explicitly aimed at adults. Like I think The Flintstones was a comedy for adults that was a cartoon, but... I definitely think they were writing to some extent to the adults and I didn't get to rewatch any, but I I had a similar experience. I I watched some of them and I can't remember if it was like on Cartoon Network or if it was a VHS or something, but I definitely uh, caught a whole bunch of them through the years and also didn't really get it. And I also just thought it always looked really bad. And it turns out that like one of the things that Jay Ward kind of innovated is that he could produce these quickly, consistently by outsourcing the animation to foreign animation studios that were a lot cheaper and did fast and not quite as good work. And that has been a staple since. So um, he he figured out a way to churn these things out too. So also some respect for uh, figuring out just how to get your vision made, even if it's not the prettiest thing, you know?
1: Right. Maybe we can credit his legacy with the creation of the Zombies
0: web series. (laughs) I was thinking uh, the Care Bears movie. Wasn't that made by some, I guess that was Canadian and they did it themselves, but like this idea of cheaply made animation. Right. I'm sure there was probably some foreign animators involved there. Yeah. So we are going to talk about Dudley Do-Right, but the main focus tonight is George of the Jungle, which in my head was a Rocky and Bullwinkle segment, but turns out was actually its own show separate from those.
1: But similarly, it was broken into chunks and had recurring bits like Super Chicken and the same type of thing.
0: Yeah. So according to Wikipedia, I don't know if this was Wikipedia or some article I was reading about it. Now I'm second guessing that Wikipedia would say something like this, but George of the Jungle is best remembered for its theme song. And surely most listeners have heard that George of the Jungle theme song before it It is a great one for sure
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, that's the tune of like the the riff, the beat, and as well as the the melody too. so um I really like this theme song uh, i I like it a lot. It's a slight variation on the clave beat. That's also known as the Bo Diddley beat in rock and roll history, because there was this early rock and roll musician named Bo Diddley and his signature track was entitled Bo Diddley. And he sang about himself is kind of like a precursor to rap where, you know, DJ Khaled. Yeah. Talk about how great they are. But he always had this rhythm for all his songs, including that signature song of his. Um, that this is three two clave beat, dun 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 And you've heard it a whole bunch of times, even if you don't realize it. But the the George of the Jungle specifically does does it on timpani, and so it does alternating high and low beat, dun 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 dun. And then I really like the way that. Usually when you hear it, it's like something happening on top of the beat, and the beat is just the rhythm. But I like it when they have vocals that align with the beats. So I think that's one of the reasons this is so memorable is because they sing George, George, George of the jungle, and it like falls in line with the clave beats in the song. It's just really catchy and and, an earworm. Right. So Weird Al recorded a cover of
1: this theme song And the liner notes on the album say that somebody like his agent or a representative from the record label told him he should be doing more straight covers, which is the weirdest thing I can think of as a note for Weird Al. (laughs) You know, your big thing is making parodies. So you should just play the same song that somebody else is playing straight up. (laughs) But I guess he did it. And what he chose was the George of the Jungle theme song.
0: I used uh, this as an opportunity to revisit some of my favorite Bo Diddley beat songs. Here were a couple I came up with. My favorite of them all is American Girl by Tom Petty. Although that one, it's not a drum, it's a guitar riff. So it's not quite as in your face about the, the fact that it's using that, that signature clave beat. Lust for Life by Iggy Pop, another great one. I Want Candy uses that. There's a Bruce Springsteen song, She's the One, which has that. Another early rock gem, Not Fade Away by Buddy Holly. I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. Dun, 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 dun. Faith by George Michael. And he does a little bit of the putting the vocal on the beat. Because he got to have faith, faith, faith. And then uh, the one that I always think of when I listen to the George of the Jungle song is from VeggieTales, the song, Oh No, What We Gonna Do?, which basically uses the exact tune and rhythm from George of the Jungle. Oh no, what we gonna do? The king likes Daniel more than me and you. George, George, George of the Jungle, strong as he can be. Right. I I hadn't put it together. Uh, To me, the melodies sound
1: different, but I can definitely recognize that drum line there, which is a good catch. I really like that song, the way that they put together the three verses of different tempos, and they all interlock.
0: It's a great one. We should do a VeggieTales dive at some point, Brian. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of films, and it's got a really weird history.
1: We should spin Jonah and the Pirates Who Don't Do Anything. Really, I'm going to take any excuse at this point to not talk about these films.
0: (laughs) Let's talk about what George of the Jungle actually is, and that is a Tarzan parody. So the whole gag is that George is a really stupid Tarzan. That's the joke. We, here's, the, here's George of the Jungle. Tarzan, but stupid. That's all I got to say. That's, that's what George of the Jungle is, Brian. You're right. And one of the things that makes him stupid is he speaks in a sort of argot, like a weird dialect where he only refers to himself in the third person. And only in the present tense, like he's like, George, like this food, George want to go here. It's like a toddler talking about themselves. So I guess the idea is he doesn't know English very well because he grew up in the jungle. And also he's stupid. So he can't like form coherent sentences. And then his other big thing is he he swings like Tarzan, but he always crashes into trees. And that's the climax of the, the theme song. Watch out for that tree. Donk. Some of his companions are ape, the ape. So it's an ape named ape. Great gag there. <laughs> the height of wit. <laughs> Although they they basically use that joke twice because there's also a Tuka toucan whose name is Tuki Tuki, and the gag for Tuki Tuki is that all he can do is just say his own name like he's a Pokemon.
1: Well, yeah. So in the original cartoon, it's. Not clear that the bird is a toucan. It's just like some generic tropical bird. Worth noting that toucans don't live in Africa, but neither do many of the animals featured in the movie. But yeah, the the Tukituki bird is the messenger that they send around and like Groot style or Chewbacca, it always says the same thing, but they're able to understand what it means. It goes, ee, ee, ah, ah, Tukituki.
0: Tuki was my favorite when, when I was a kid. I don't know if I mentioned this, but I saw the George of the Jungle movie when I was a kid multiple times, and I um, also saw Dudley Do-Right. I barely remembered it, but uh, enough things tickled my neurons that I knew I had seen it before. This was new to
1: me. I did see the Dudley Do-Right movie when it was in theaters, maybe once it was out on video, because I went and went camping with my Cub Scout troop, and we camped out on a minor league baseball field. So we were out there on the diamond in our
0: tents, and they screened Dudley Do-Right. Oh, man. Interesting. That's one of those stories where, like, just the details seem like they were made by an AI generator. When I was a Boy Scout, I camped out on a minor league baseball field, and they screened the Brendan Fraser movie Dudley (laughs) Do-Right. But I lived it. Yeah. Um, The other main characters are Shep, who is the pet elephant of George and acts like he's a dog. And then Ursula, who is the Jane character. And and then the uh, movie adds in a couple of characters, too. And in the lead up to this episode,
1: I watched the pilot episode of George of the Jungle, And Ursula is just called Jane.
0: I read that. Yeah. For the first episode, they called her Jane and then they changed it to Ursula for all the subsequent ones. It's like uh, in Beach Party when they change the name of Deadhead to Meathead halfway through. Hmm. It's maybe a little like that. Just they change the character name.
1: Yeah. No, it's it's a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're going for. Also in that pilot, it was narrated by Hans Conried, who we'll be talking about more in a little bit.
0: Oh, that's cool. Um, the one last thing before we, we dive into the next sort of theme of the evening um, is on the topic of Jay Ward. One thing I read about him that made me think of you, Brian, and more specifically, your love of Gravity Falls. And what what's the name of the mystery shack? Is that what it's called in Gravity Falls? Right. That's the central tourist trap attraction. So apparently Jay Ward also liked these types of shops and he opened one on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. And it was basically a gift shop for stuff related to his animation. But he also occasionally had curiosities there. And he had a spinning statue of Rocky and Bullwinkle on it. And apparently he, like, spent a lot of time at the store and maintained everything there personally pretty well. And then when he passed away, it it stayed open, but people stopped, like, taking care of it as well. And the uh, statue eventually uh, fell out of maintenance and was no longer able to spin. Oh wow! Although apparently DreamWorks eventually bought it, but I thought that was a, like if, if you got rich, like that's the kind of thing that I could see Brian doing his opening his own little shop just for the hell of it.
1: I think you're right. And another Jay Ward anecdote is when I went to Universal Studios, I think it was in 2012, they have a like comics and cartoons themed area like newspaper comics. And one of the things they have is a big Dudley-Do-Right-themed log flume ride. So we were in the line for the Dudley-Do-Right log flume ride. And it started raining. And so they, like, shut the ride down. But we had already waited in the line for a really long time, winding through this big internal structure to get on it. And so we just thought, hey, well, we'll hang around and we'll wait because we've already waited this long. You know, sunk cost fallacy. And then eventually... Finally, they started it up again and we got on the ride and then it broke down. There was like a log jam on the log flume ride. And so like five logs were all stuck together up in the top of this thing. And we ended up sitting there a long time more. Oh, man. So that's that's my relevant, mildly
0: interesting Dudley Do-Right tale. My log flume story is... I went on a log flume at a theme park. I don't remember what park. And when we were going up the big hill before like the one drop where you get splashed, someone like three logs in front of me visibly freaked out, like scared of the fall and just hopped out of the log. And so they had to like pull the emergency switch to shut it down. Uh, That person, I think, like did it at a platform, like right before the drop. So I was stuck like three quarters of the way up a log plume hill for 20 minutes before they turned it back on and we we dropped down. Wow. But the other theme of the evening is actor Brendan Fraser kind of ties these movies together, although he is not the star of all three movies. Um, So Brendan Fraser has become a figure of note the past few years. Um, He is, of course one of the bigger Hollywood stars from the late 90s and early 2000s. But I think he's kind of his generation's Steve Gutenberg, which is to say a person that people don't really understand why he's famous, but still sort of like him. He's kind of got like this boyish handsomeness to him and he's kind of charming, but he still just seems like a normal dude that you could like meet at Home Depot or something like that, you know?
1: Right. And now it's, or at least a couple years ago, it was kind of a meme of where did he go? You know, you'd see all those like clickbaity ads and YouTube videos of the actor who disappeared and you have a Brendan Fraser thumbnail, but he's in stuff again now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's been this whole arc actually. So you're right. It was like a meme and there were mostly doctored pictures of him, but they like give him really bad haircuts and like, veiny eyes that made him look like he was stoned all the time and like puffed out his cheeks with Photoshop. And um so it would always be like, remember yeah, exactly what you said. Remember Brendan Fraser. Here's what he looks like now And a a meme subreddit called Save Brendan was formed. And there was like this groundswell movement, bring back Brendan Fraser, start casting him and stuff again. Um of course just in time for the people who grew up on his movies to hit their quarter life crisis and feel nostalgia for everything about their childhood but you're right there's been a renaissance that's apparently what they call it and i like that so he was cast in a scorsese film and a couple other things the one that caught my eye that i sent to you is a24 who distributes a lot of like artsy genre films um and dramas has this movie coming out called the whale which is about a really fat person. I don't know the rest of the story, but it's about a really fat person. And they just released their stills and it stars Brendan Fraser. And he is indeed very fat in the movie. And I I was laughing at it.
1: Yeah, so it's like a real life art imitating life or, I I don't know, art imitating memes at least. Because remember
0: Brendan Fraser? Here's what he looks like now. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. He's the whale now, yeah. I think the, the peak Brendan Fraser moment of the past couple of years, though, was there was this TikTok that went viral of this woman interviewing Brendan Fraser while he was in a cowboy hat. And she gives this really heartfelt remark that I'm rooting for you. The Internet's rooting for you. We all have your back. We all want you in our lives, Brendan. And he gets all misty-eyed and he says, well, shucks, ma'am. And it's very, very sweet. So you should go see the shucks, ma'am TikTok if you haven't.
1: There's also a DC Comics show that's on lately. I think it's called Doom Patrol, and he's got a major role on Doom Patrol.
0: Oh, interesting. We'll be seeing Brendan Fraser in two of our films tonight. And with that, I think we are at the point where we actually got through. There's a lot of stuff feeding into these movies. I'm glad we were able to talk through it, Brian. Oh, man, we finally have to go over the crest of the log flume hill and (laughs)
1: plow ahead into these actual films
0: yeah so george of the jungle from 1997 directed by sam wiseman pretty solid cast brendan Fraser is is george of the jungle leslie mann plays ursula ursula stanhope i don't know if that last name was invented for the movie or not so leslie mann we might know from a whole bunch of r-rated comedies of the past decade and a half since then because she's married to Judd Apatow and always appears in Judd Apatow movies. She's the housewife in Knocked Up and then in This is 40 and, and she appears in a couple other ones too. So um, I I kind of like her. Wait, do you have any strong opinions on Leslie Mann? I was not really familiar with this actress. I've seen a couple of Judd Apatow movies, but I
1: didn't put it together. Apparently she came in for an audition for some movie that he was a producer on or something. And... That's where they connected.
0: They, they hit it off. Interesting. The D-bag boyfriend, or in this case, fiance, is a character named Lyle Vandegroot, who I think was invented for the movie. Brian, are you familiar with that? I think that's right,
1: that he's an original character. I know Thomas Hayden Church most from his role as Lowell, the mechanic on Wings, who's kind of like an Ernest P. Worrell character. That's kind of his delivery style. Probably his biggest role was when he played Sandman, one of the villains in Spider-Man three and more recently
0: Spider-Man (laughs) three. He, he shows up in a lot of stuff, including indie stuff. Um, he is one of the stars of sideways, which is a movie I might bring to the pod sometime. And he's pretty terrific in that. Uh, He's like a real ass actor. So, uh, but he does give off D-Bag vibes, so he's a good casting for the D-Bag fiancé here. Um, and then John Cleese, the star from Monty Python, plays the ape named Ape. Right, because I don't think we
1: said, but the gag of the ape named Ape is that while George is inarticulate, the ape is very
0: articulate, and he's got a British accent. That's right, yeah. Does he in the the show, too? Yes. Okay. So this movie opens with a little animated intro where we're given a backstory that, again, I don't know if this is in the TV show or not, but the premise is that he grew up in the jungle after there was a plane crash and he survived the plane crash. And so now he's like a man of the jungle. And then we flash forward to the present and we are now in live action. So that intro was animated.
1: Now is when I'll point out that this movie is from 1997 and it was made by Disney Disney released their official Tarzan adaptation in 1999. So, like, they were probably working on them simultaneously. But this Tarzan grows up montage has nothing on Son of Man by Phil Collins. And I just kept being struck by that all throughout the movie. It's like somewhere, somebody in the same
0: building, maybe, was working on Tarzan. And I think we'll get to to George of the Jungle, too. I think there is some intentional Tarzan riffs, like the the 1999 Tarzan riffs in that one. Absolutely. And we kind of cut to the chase. Uh, Ursula, so we learn she is an heiress, so wealthy and engaged to Lyle. And she's out on the safari looking for apes, a rich person seeking their thrills in the wilderness with a local guide who has a story about a white ape. And Lyle just kind of shows up He's like, oh, I found you. So I guess she was going by herself, and he traced her down. And in short order, Lyle and Ursula are attacked by a lion, and the white ape, whom we know to be George, comes down and and rescues Ursula. And so Ursula is once again separated from her fiancé, and we're pretty quickly plunged into what I would consider the promise of the premise of the movie, which is George being a wild man and Ursula being a city girl, kind of having their uh, fish out of water shenanigans. And also this movie is basically a romantic comedy, Brian. There's a lot of tropes of romantic comedy here, even more than just like your typical animated adventure, I would say. Yeah, I guess I can see that. And we get some funny bits of, you know, George is nursing the lion attacked Ursula back to health, but also falling for her. And, He's trying to get advice from Ape on how to impress her. And it's like goofy stuff like, oh, you got to throw the grass in the air and show your teeth to show show your attraction and stuff like that. So got to do a mating dance, you know, that type of gag. And this is where it struck me that I think Cleese is actually quite funny in his vocal performance. There was a lot of his deliveries that are very dry and made me laugh. And it's not just the voice,
1: though, because... So the gorillas are people in suits and it's less lame than that might sound because it's body suits, but then the heads are these remote control puppet prosthetics made by the Jim Henson company. And so they can make the heads
0: move and talk and it works really well. Completely agree. Looks really good. Way better than I was expecting it to look. It's kind of like that Jurassic Park thing where it was before CGI really took over, but they were like smart with the technology so they could make it look kind of good, even though it was still mostly practical. I don't know if there's any CGI shenanigans, at least on the gorillas. But yeah, I, I was impressed with the, how the live action gorillas looked.
1: Yeah, it's like the same tech for the
0: Hoggle and Ludo heads in Labyrinth. It's nifty. It looks good. One thing that happens during this segment is George teaches Ursula to do like a jungle dance. And the song gets played in the background that as soon as it played, I realized I remembered that this song had been like stuck in my head for 10 years after I first saw George of the Jungle. And I had like successfully scrubbed it through like years of boozing and not sleeping enough. And now it's back in my head. And so I got to start drinking again, Brian, to get this. Song out of my head. (laughs) I'll say I was charmed
1: by this moment. No,
0: I agree. I I like it too. It's like, I was
1: pretty low on the movie. And then I got to this point and it's Brendan Fraser being dopily charming, leading Ursula in this dance around the campfire. And it's like, this is kind of nice.
0: Dayla, uh I said Dayla, when I'm with you. And then in the bridge, I've been waiting for you all my life. That like one line just like looped in my head and has been for the past week since I watched this. I've been waiting for you all my life. I don't know why, but whatever. And then it gets played again at the the climax. And then in George of the Jungle 2, it gets played again. So
1: Oh, another thing is every possible way that you could interpret the George of the Jungle theme instrumentally gets used in these two movies. It's like... They do it like in a fanfare style. They make it sound sad. They do it all kinds of ways, which is the...
0: Right. That's a good call. Yeah. They really lean on that, that theme song. Another thing they really lean on are the jokes where George swings from something and hits a tree or hits something else. Like probably 15 times in this first movie. Uh, yeah, at least. Eventually, Lyle, who was not rescued by George, but survived the lion attack. And he's got these minions of these, these two poachers who reminded me of Balkan Skull. One is skinny and one is fat, and they're kind of bumbling. They're a little too competent and conniving to be real Balkan Skull clones, but they made me think of Balkan Skull just because they looked like him. But they all managed to find Ursula and George at George's little hut. But Ursula has decided that she's a jungle girl now. She wants to stay in the jungle. She wants Lyle to go away, and then we like pretty abruptly have this this thing where uh, like a lot of action goes down over a couple minutes that kind of changes the whole nature of the film that that we're in. So one is the poachers try to shoot Shep, that's the the elephant, by the way, played by a real elephant. Right. It's like. Whenever it's standing still, it's a real elephant. And then once it starts doing
1: the dog antics, at least parts of it are CGI. And like when it was going on, I was thinking, oh, look at this bad dated CGI. Little did I know it was going to get worse in the (laughs) sequel. Like this looks amazing compared to
0: the film six years later. And I did read there was also some puppet work involved with some of the elephant scenes, too. Oh, okay. I don't know exactly how they did it, but you're right. You could definitely see the seams a little bit on the Shep scenes. So they're going to shoot Shep, but then they see Ape the Ape speaking and they decide, wow, gorillas don't speak in real life, but this one is. I think people would pay a lot of money to see this and decide that their new goal is to capture him and put him in a live Vegas show like Mighty Joe Young or King Kong or King Kong.
1: And I've got to agree, this is
0: a good plan. I would pay to watch a talking ape. It's worth more than like a couple of ivory tusks or whatever. There's this bit where Lyle has a novelty lighter that looks like a pistol, just identical to a pistol. But also he keeps it in the place where he where there's a an actual pistol and there's a switcheroo and Lyle ends up accidentally shooting George.
1: Yeah. So this is like right at the halfway point of the movie. And I was expecting you know, being influenced by the 1999 Disney Tarzan, that it was going to end with George and Ursula staying in the jungle. But we spend a whole half of the movie with George in civilization. So like this is where everything changes is at the 45 minute mark, which is kind of an unusual story structure for a feature film. And yeah, Lyle having this accidental gun that shoots George, but not fatally, also, George, after this, has a bandage on his head. So did he shoot him in the head? It was very weird because I, I would think that a headshot would be more lethal than it seems to be. Although they do occasionally make the joke that cartoon characters can't die. Right.
0: Yeah, I thought he was shot in the shoulder or something. Okay. But you're right. It's not really clear. I, I don't remember, to be honest. Yeah. But,
1: like, it kind of makes Lyle sympathetic if he grabbed the gun accidentally. And I don't know. It's like... I guess we just had to have something that was going to thrust us into this new status
0: quo. Lyle is definitely less sleazy than some D-bag boyfriends. He definitely comes across as very douchey and he chills with poachers and he chases down his girlfriend to Africa. But like, yeah, he didn't shoot George on purpose. You know, you're right. He There is no single act that that we see of his that is irredeemable, I would say. And yet smash cuts to George and Ursula back at Ursula's home in in San Francisco. And Ursula is now nursing George back. So this is like a mirror of what we had just seen where Ursula was in George's jungle and was taking care of Ursula. Now George is in Ursula's urban jungle and she is taking care of him. And Lyle's like in African prison for shooting George. And the only person who seems upset about this is Ursula's mom. She's like, your your fiancé is in prison and you literally don't care. And also you're hanging out with this dude you met and spent one or two nights with in Africa. Like, I, I was kind of on the side of Ursula's mom here. <laughs> it's the Titanic dynamic. And I think yeah. Dan
1: expressed some of these same apprehensions in our Titanic discussion. It's like you just met this poor dude, but you got the thing lined up with the rich guy.
0: Right. There's a there's a bit where George swings from like a power line to save a guy who's stuck on the Golden Gate Bridge. And this was like a real stunt. It was it was pretty cool. It was like a, I, I'm sure there was a, a double. It wasn't Brendan Fraser flying out there, but definitely somebody was flying. Yeah, out there. it was pretty
1: epic. He's swinging from the cables of this big bridge, but it wasn't was
0: it the Golden Gate Bridge. It wasn't golden. So is there some other San Francisco bridge? You're right. I don't know. I don't know the bridges of of San Francisco. I can't speak to it. But some big suspension bridge. It did not look like the full house opening. And it made me think a little bit of the the Mission Impossible movies. Tom Cruise always has one signature stunt. I like the idea of Brendan Fraser having a signature stunt for his George of the Jungle movie, but I don't think it was him. But there's, there's some shenanigans where Ursula's mom and George have conversations and Ursula's mom manipulates George to, to leave Ursula, go back to the jungle. And simultaneously, we get another th- plot thread kind of catching up with it. So back in Africa, what had been happening is those poachers had captured Ape and were trying to get Ape out of Africa. And the gag is Ape keeps giving them bad directions on where to go. So they keep circling back to George's house. Um, but Ape sends Tuki to San Francisco to get George to come back. And George does indeed go back. And so now we're at the climax. George is back in Africa. Ape's still in Africa. Lyle's there too. I forget how Ursula gets there. She gets there at some point too. But Lyle is back in the picture. And this is when he kind of turns a little dark. He's like, you've lost your mind, Ursula. I'm bringing you back to civilization. And essentially kidnaps her to bring her back home. Right. He's also at the head of this, like, I guess it's a cult. That he's in
1: charge of, which was strange, but I think he met them in the prison. So it's like also a prison gang.
0: Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure there. There's new minions, though. You're right. There's this new group. We get another kind of neat stunt where there's like uh, Lyle and Ursula floating down a river and George needs to rescue them. And he he does indeed successfully save Ursula from the, the mean Lyle and Ursula confesses her love and they get married in the jungle. They're going to live in the jungle. And that's the end of the movie. Except there's this incredible stinger at the end of the film where we see Ape has voluntarily gone to Vegas and gotten his own show. And we see him performing like a full cover with John Cleese in the vocals of Frank Sinatra's signature My Way song. And there's also like... Uh, costumes and props in a vegas style that appear to be reenacting parts of the plot of the movie we just saw so this is like a variation on the rap recap except it's the vegas show gorilla singing recap yeah this is the best part of the movie
1: this like bumped (laughs) it up a full point for me and interestingly the poachers from earlier have a role in the show, but they play the tree that gets crashed into. (laughs) So like on the one hand, I guess that's demeaning because they're getting crashed into, but like their idea of the show is still existing. (laughs) And also presumably they're getting paid for their appearance. So maybe not as much as they would be if they were the executive producers or
0: whatever, but like in a way it worked out for them. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, uh, George of the jungle. Um, we can do a couple of good things and not so good things about these movies as we go, Brian. So um, some good things. It's just a breezy, charming movie, not too much to the plot. And it comes down to the cast. It's, I actually like the cast in this one. There's really no misses in the cast for me. And I also like the, the premise where we, we go back to civilization. So George is the fish out of water there, not just Ursula being the fish out of water in the African jungle. Also pretty cool that we get a real elephant and, and pretty solid like puppet and animatronic gorilla in a suit work that with Ape that I, I quite liked. And some of the other there's like not just Ape, but there's like a whole crew of gorillas that are in there.
1: Yeah, they're like playing bongos all the time. And there is a real orangutan in some scenes,
0: various real animals. I've, <laughs> I found one joke review of or not even joke review, one tidbit on a letterbox review that said, Whoever wrote the review said he listened to a podcast with Brendan Fraser, where Brendan Fraser said the little monkey there's So there's a little monkey that gets some play. The little monkey kept masturbating during takes. (laughs) (laughs) Highbrow art we're dealing with here. And then one other good thing I kind of liked about this movie is it has the the whole narrator making meta jokes. And I actually thought some of them were pretty clever. Like I, I was smiling and laughing quite a bit
1: it does feel faithful to the original cartoons.
0: Any other good things you wanted to toss on there, Brian?
1: This one was really a roller coaster for me of like, I would be pretty low and then something would happen that would charm me. And so, yeah, I'm a big fan of that gorilla number at the end and the, the chemistry between Ursula and George, I think works. Right. Oh, there's a scene when she brings him back to the city And he's like taming horses in this very open Fabio style dress shirt. (laughs) And all the women are just staring at him, mouths agape. I thought
0: that was funny. The cinematographer on this film was a woman. And I would say there's more of a female gaze at this film than is typical for your blockbuster from the late 90s. Um, Lots of looking at bare-chested Brendan Fraser when he was probably at the peak of his physical fitness. Also the peak of his handsomeness, I would say.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Some not-so-good things. Some of the jokes are just beaten to the ground. The whole George crashing into a tree thing is never funny and is increasingly unfunny the more that it happens.
1: Yeah, it... (laughs) It feels insensitive to people who have experienced collisions with trees. (laughs) Ableist. Yeah, maybe. I feel like Sonny Bono would have something to say.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I don't think he would have anything to say, actually. (laughs) Perhaps not. That reminds me, concussions in movies don't make sense. That's not how concussions work. You don't, like, black out for 36 hours And then wake up normal, like that. That's just not how it works. But that, or like, lose a very specific ten minute stretch of your memory or something like that. Well, maybe you get some of that. I don't know. There's there's also too much fart and poop jokes. You know, you got to have some of it for a kids movie. But Thomas Hayden Church face plants and some poop. Like they they threw some kernels in the poop that they show. A lot of ape farting jokes.
1: Yeah, there is a lot of the apes farting
0: (laughs) is that your favorite kind of comedy brian not really
1: (laughs) but like i mean there's time spent of like the grimaces that the puppet faces make as they relish this expulsion
0: (laughs) someone got paid to do that yeah (laughs)
1: probably multiple people because there's somebody in the suit there's somebody controlling the face there's somebody who wrote that this was going to happen there was a director overseeing everything they probably drew this as a storyboard the face that the farting ape was going (laughs) to (laughs) make so a whole team of people were paid for this
0: i want that storyboard yeah and i also got to say i got really tired of the whole thing where george talked like this George think Ursula, very pretty. Just, it, it got real old. I, I didn't need a whole movie's worth of that, that kind of talking. <laughs> and I thought a common theme of at least these first two
1: movies is that Brendan Fraser didn't do too much to, like, imitate the voices of the cartoon. He's got the speaking style here, but he's not really trying to sound like George of the Jungle.
0: I think that's probably fair. I'm not fresh enough on my vintage George to, to comment upon that. But yeah. Um, all right. We can wait to the, the end to rate all three at once. See if there's an overarching arc to our, our scores. Indeed. So let's move on to the next feature. As the movies get less coherent, I'm going to be brisker on my recaps, I'll say. Mercifully brisker. <laughs> uh, Dudley do came out in 1999 and also stars Brendan Fraser as Dudley do another character from a Jay Ward production, but... This, I don't think this is a Disney movie, Brian.
1: No, it isn't. Apparently in the promotional material, though, they pointed out the coincidence. It's like, from the creator of George of the Jungle, featuring the star of George of the Jungle, by a director who saw George of
0: the Jungle. That's kind of funny. But the co-stars this time are Sarah Jessica Parker, who I don't think of as like someone you cast to be the eye candy. I guess this was like... She had just broken out with Sex and the City. Right. It's only in the context of Hocus Pocus, where you have two
1: women who are the ugly, wicked witches, and she looks good in comparison.
0: Her character's name is Nell Fenwick. And then the real star of the show, Alfred Molina. You remember the other good selection we discussed him?
1: I remember that you pointed him out when it happened. What I always think of him as is Doc Ock from Spider-Man Two, obviously. Oh yeah, signature role. He debuted in Raiders of the Lost Ark, playing the guy who gets the spikes shot through him in the temple at the start. But what was the film that he popped up in in our canon, Dan?
0: He's the drug dealer in Boogie Nights. Oh, where they're they're tossing the firecrackers. Sure enough, yeah. I like this was a revelation to me in that it, it was like once you have enough data points, I, I like Alfred Molina. I want to see him in more things. So I never thought of him as an actor that I liked. But now I do think of him as one. Yeah, we got to queue up some surprise Alfred Molina picks. And I, he just he shows up in places. I didn't know we were going to be watching an Alfred Molina movie this week when I when we picked Dudley Do-Right. But I guess we are. Guess we did. And his character's name is Snidely Whiplash. Um, So I watched both this and Wacky Racers as a kid, and the names Snidely Whiplash and Dick Dastardly are ones that I get mixed up in my head.
1: Very similar characters. We name-dropped both of them in our Wacky Races episode, and that's because Dudley Do-Right also pays homage to old silent movie melodrama tropes.
0: Yeah, he really reminds you of that, the lead in the movie from last week where he's like this upstanding fella with, with no real edge. Um, right. But, you, okay, back to Snidely Whiplash. You would agree that if I said that there was Dick Dastardly and there was Snidely Whiplash, and one of them is like a generic do-batter, and one of them is a villain who races... You would think Dick Dastardly is the generic bad guy and Snidely Whiplash is the racing bad guy. Oh, sure, because you get Whiplash in a car. Yeah. That's a great point. I never thought about that before.
1: What I will say is Dick Dastardly was voiced by Paul Winchell, who was also Tigger in the Disney cartoons, in the the early Winnie the Poohs. But Snidely Whiplash was voiced by Hans Conrad from 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Probably more famously, he was Captain Hook in Disney's
0: Peter Pan. But to me, he's always Dr. T. That's a good poll. Yeah. Brian, would you go opening night if they did a gritty, snidely whiplash reboot like Walking Phoenix and Joker? I probably would, but maybe not if it was Joaquin. <laughs> I don't know who the ideal uh, gritty Joker, excuse me, gritty, snidely whiplash would be. But I think we should retire the Joker and and bring back Snidely Whiplash. So when they recast this character every three years and and bring in some new prestige actor to play him, it's it's the Snidely Whiplash variations we get, not the Joker variations that we get. Absolutely. And
1: my one other Dudley Do-Right anecdote is that my dad does a fantastic Dudley Do-Right impression. Like, I, I couldn't even get close. Because the cartoon character has a very distinctive voice, which Brendan Fraser tries not at all to emulate. Brendan Fraser is just talking in this movie. <laughs> uh, well, there is like a song that Dudley do and Nell sing to each other where he's kind of doing the voice. But uh, I'll try it. It's not going to sound anything like it. So you may as well just cut it. But he, he says, I'll save you Nell." And the way that my dad does it is, like, spot on. And the weird thing is that he will then act like he doesn't do a to Right impression. Interesting. Like, my dad will occasionally deny that he does this voice, and then it'll just <laughs>
0: pop in and then disappear just as suddenly. When you least expect it, yeah. Right. Two other cast members of note. So we talked about how John Cleese appeared in George of the Jungle. Well, Eric Idle, another member of... Monty Python appears here as a character named Kim J. Darling, who is kind of a mentor type character. So I thought that was another interesting connection for two movies that apparently followed the same template, but not made by the same studios. Yeah, pretty bizarre. I was thinking watching George of the Jungle...
1: When John Cleese popped up, I'm like, you know, John Cleese really had the biggest career post-Monty Python of any of them, but then second would have to be Eric Idle. And then I put on Dudley Do-Right, and it's like, oh my gosh, he's here. (laughs) You nailed
0: it. Yeah, that's pretty funny. The last bit of casting I wanted to call out is, uh, so there's this really weird runner in this movie about a native tribe called the Kumquats. But their their shtick is that they speak and act as if they are stereotypical New Yorkers, despite wearing like Native American garb that would today be considered very offensive for a white person to be donning. So um, the chief is played by an actor named Alex Rocco, who has a very distinctive gravelly voice, and he is best known for being in The Godfather. He plays Mo Green, but. He also plays a record chief in That Thing You Do, one of my favorite movies where I bring up a connection wherever I can, the curmudgeonly record executive. So Alex Rocco appearance, I I always get excited. And I always have to think for about 15 seconds before I place what it is. I know that I'm excited to see him, but it always takes me a minute to place. It's like, who's the weird guy with the gravelly voice? Oh yeah, he's the grumpy guy from That Thing You Do. So. Something that struck me multiple
1: times watching this movie is there's like three big musical dance numbers. Like they put a lot of work into these dance numbers and I'm not sure why. That's not something I associate with Dudley Do-Right,
0: but s- somebody on the team was was into this. Well, I think it goes back to your point about how this is like a throwback to early cinema. And I, having seen... Um, a bunch of 1910s and early 1920s movies as part of my tour through cinema history via watching the 1001 films to see Before You Die. There are a lot of dance numbers in those. So I think it's probably like a tribute to that. And I guess there was a little of that in Great Race. Right. So this movie's only 77 minutes long. More movies should be 77 minutes long, Brian. And that 77 minutes includes a five minute animated short where they create a new um, fractured fairy tale, like from the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. It's kind of like in Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Doesn't that open with a Roger Rabbit cartoon that's like a pastiche to the old Looney Tunes movies? Right. Or is that just a separate short?
1: No, I think it was at the start of the film. And what's... Kind of interesting is they actually did Roger Rabbit shorts ahead of a few other movies after that, too. Like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids starts out with a Roger Rabbit.
0: Oh, interesting. So this movie opens with our three main characters, Dudley, Snidely, and Nell. And those are some great names now that I'm thinking about it. So in the Wikipedia summary of this film,
1: the first sentence is, Three children are with a horse. (laughs) which is very nearly my favorite starting sentence to any wikipedia article only barely beaten out by the first sentence of the muppet wiki article on elmo's dad which is elmo's dad is elmo's dad (laughs) and elmo is a link to the wikipedia article on elmo and dad is a link to the wikipedia article on fatherhood
0: (laughs) elmo's dad is elmo's dad that's pretty terrific Uh, so these these three kids who will soon be adults um each have life dreams dudley wants to be a cop Nell wants to travel the world and snidely wants to be a villain I'm team snidely on this. Like I I want more kids to have the life ambition to be a mustache twirling villain. (laughs) You should discuss that with your wife and see what she thinks. (laughs) But one thing to point out is they're in Canada and I didn't actually get that much Canada vibes from the movie other than like some of the settings and the fact that it's Mounties and stuff. I feel like there's a distinct, more genial Canadian vibe that this movie is a little too manic to have a little too incoherent to have. It's not uncommon for me to like watch some indie comedy that I really enjoyed and look up. It's like, oh, that was Canadian. That's why not too many people talk about this movie. And also I kind of dug it. So like, I don't know. I kind of have a soft spot for, for Canadian movies. And this did not feel Canadian to me.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's like they Hollywoodized it. Not that it was a native Canadian concept to begin with, but I agree that they should have had more of that influence.
0: I was actually wondering as I watched this, I was like, is Jay Ward actually Canadian? And then I looked it up and he's not. So I guess he was just like playing on the stereotype of a Mountie. Right. Apparently
1: there was a whole genre of silent film adventure stories that were called Northerns. Interesting. Like you think of Westerns and what that means. But uh, Northern was a whole genre with, with Mounties.
0: Just tonight, actually, I was watching the Baz Luhrmann movie, Australia. And that is essentially a Western in Australia. So what would you call that, Brian?
1: Maybe a Southern? I don't know. But I, I have seen Australian Westerns. There's this other one called The Proposition from 2005.
0: So the movie smashes to the present, cuts to the present, and the characters are grown up and they have more or less fulfilled their life's dreams. And so the story proper kicks off to the extent that you could say that this movie has a story proper. It basically follows what happens in this little town called Semi-Happy Valley after Snidely Whiplash has a bank robbery and it kind of like triggers this series of events like he's tricking his minions who go to Africa or something and then he somehow like hides the gold in the lake which makes people think that there is a gold rush there well so
1: here's what he does there's multiple pieces to this and it it is complicated and maybe this is more attention than the plot is deserving of but so they do a bank robbery and they steal both cash and gold snidely says he's going to take the cash and his minions can have the gold But then he does some ruse that he sends the minions off to all corners of the earth. So then he takes the gold as well. But it's not just so that he can have both the cash and the gold. Instead, he smashes the gold up and puts it into bullet shells so that he can seed the land around the area with little bits of gold to make people think that there are natural gold deposits in the area. And spur on a gold rush because what he really wants to do is profit from a budding population boom. Basically turn the town into a gold rush town and then own everything in the town. So all the various services are profiting him.
0: That's everything you just said is stupid as hell. Why did they write this into a kid's movie? <laughs> it's very complicated.
1: It's like Star Wars Episode One level complexity of a family
0: film plot. But the long and short of it is that at the end of this whole little plot, Snidely has become in charge of semi-happy valleys, like bought out all the mortgages. And so it's like in, in It's a Wonderful Life in the dark version. It's called Potter Town or something like that. Yeah, Pottersville. Yeah.
1: So, OK, to talk about... It's a Wonderful Life for just a moment. When I saw it at first, I thought that was really stupid that when the villain takes over, he names the town after himself. But then I realized just how many places are named after people. Oh, yeah. It's like Washington City, Washington State, Lincoln, Nebraska. And it just goes on and on and on. And then I think about the town that I live in is Burke, and it's named after Silas Burke
0: from the 1800s. So maybe that rings true. Reston, named after Robert E. Smith, R.E.S. town. And he actually founded it and intentionally named it that way after himself, which I think some of these places are like done in honor of a person, but he actually named that after himself and planned the whole town himself. So you you do get some of that in real life. And he does indeed rename the town to Whiplash City. And his eventually those minions who had been sent on a wild goose chase come back. And then there's like this whole extended segment of the film where the gag is that Snidely Whiplash is actually, like, really good at running a prosperous city. And in the meantime, Dudley do is hanging around. And he's like, Whiplash is a bad guy. He can't be good. So I got to figure out how to take him down. But when he tries to do that, he gets in trouble. So now he has become the bad guy. And Whiplash is ostensibly the good guy. And then, yeah, the, the kumquat, the, the New York quote-unquote natives are hanging around there, too. There's so many weird things that happen in this movie, and it it
1: really is. Like, I remember that I watched this movie in theaters, but I remembered very little about it. There's just, uh, everybody is kind of treading water. Right. It's like, we get a solid start. It's like, here are our characters.
0: And then I just felt like we were treading water until the end. Yeah. It like slid off of my brain. I was like, a scene just happened, but I don't know what was at the start of the scene or the end of the scene or what the stakes were. But I know there was a scene. It's like, I, that was the level of engagement that this movie inspired in me. Eventually, now that he's become like the, a bad dude, a pariah, Dudley gets some training from this like local loser who's also secretly a wise man. And that's the Kim J. Darling Eric Idol character. Who I actually thought he was pretty good. I thought he, he might have been the best member of the cast in this one. I, I really liked what he was doing. I liked him as a trainer, but his introduction is so weird. Like, he's
1: this bum who is the first one to find the gold. And then he gets put on Regis and Kathy Lee. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> so all of these movies struck me with... So much era mismatch, <laughs> especially this one, because like Dudley Right is a tribute to the early 1900s, but the cartoon was made in the 60s. And now here it is resurrected in the late 90s, which watching it now in the 2020s is already this time capsule. So you've got this prospector who suddenly he's famous. And the way they show that is by putting him on Regis and Kathy Lee. It's layers on layers. Yeah. Here is Eric Idle from Monty Python as this like rotten tooth prospector talking to Regis Philbin.
0: Really weird. Good breakdown. Yeah, bizarre. Uh, Reminds me of if you ever go to visit Rome, you can like walk a city block and you'll see stuff that was ancient times. You'll see stuff that was medieval times. You'll see stuff that was Renaissance and you'll see modern buildings. And it's just like, Layers on layers of history that doesn't quite match with each other. That, as you were describing it, that's what it made me think of. We we also get a romance subplot, and it's never quite clear to me like what the relationship is between the characters. Like in some ways, it's supposed to be a love triangle between Dudley, Nell, and Snidely. But also, Dudley and Nell already have history. But also, they're like not together. But they also dance together and sort of act together. Not ever really clear to me what was going on with there, but they're going to end up happy at the end. Right. One of the big dance numbers is this love triangle number where
1: it reminded me a lot of the song Get Together Weather from 5000 Fingers of Dr. T, because you've got the same dynamic where it's like ostensibly Dudley and Snidely are both trying to dance with Nell, but occasionally they end up
0: dancing with each other. That's right. Yeah. The more that we're getting Snidely Whiplash doing interesting things, the more this movie's working, I'd say. At, at some point, the movie just kind of bails out of the whole Whiplash town thing. It was not clear to me what caused that. I, I I didn't pick up on that. But Whiplash goes back to being the bad guy. And he also attacks Dudley for some reason when Dudley's with the, the natives.
1: Yeah, so... As much as I was invested in the details of this gold scheme at the start, I, too, thought that it was very abrupt. It's just like, then the townspeople decided they wanted their town back because this
0: also, I think, has got the the narrator going on. Yeah, no surprise. Dudley wins, marries Nell. Oh, iconic thing about Dudley is he rides a horse, but he rides it backwards because he's also stupid, just like George of the Jungle. Another recurring thing is instead of hitting a tree, he steps on planks and planks come up and hit him like the rake and Simpsons.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, and the Dudley Do-Right theme song is not nearly as iconic, but we do get one rendition of it here. And that is it
0: goes. <singing> no, it's like a cavalry charge. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Anyways, the horse had disappeared and he comes back too. And so that's that's the happily ever after. And that's Dudley Do-Right. Yeah. He has a horse named Horace, just like George has an ape named Ape. Real clever stuff. Some, some quick good things, not so good things. I was vibing with Snidely, Team Snidely, hashtag Team Snidely. Give me a t-shirt. Snidely Whiplash did nothing wrong. <laughs> Possible episode title. There's been a couple of good ones too tonight. Then... As incoherent as the movie is, and boy, is it incoherent, there's some fun, like, practical effects and dance scenes and, and some, some attention paid to, like, making stuff that is fun to watch, even if it doesn't actually make sense, I thought.
1: Yeah. The main thing I remembered about seeing this, quote-unquote, in theaters, was it ends with this big battle where it's Dudley on the horse and Snidely has a flotilla of tanks like real tanks. And so Dudley is riding around on the horse evading the tank blasts and like the Indian tribe is shooting fireworks at the tanks. So it's kind of epic. Like it's at
0: least on a big scale. I also thought the cast worked pretty well overall. I mean, uh, I'm not sure about Sarah Jessica Parker, but maybe I just had preconceived notions of her and she was fine. They were all pretty fine. I thought. And I do think there was some promise to the idea of Snidely and Dudley swapping roles, one becoming the good guy, the other becoming the bad guy. Um, Although I don't think it it did it in the most possible interesting way. Oh, I did laugh
1: when they confront each other and Dudley is in like a black leather jacket now and Snidely says, you can't wear black, I wear black. And Dudley
0: says, that's not even black, it's navy. (laughs) But the, the story just, it does nothing for me. Or I should say, It's so over the place and rushed and just all these weird ideas packed into it. I could never follow it, even from the start. Of note, perhaps, maybe or maybe not of note, the director is also the writer. And he's a guy who made a a few sitcoms and also the director of Police Academy named Hugh Wilson. His most famous sitcom that he made was WKRP in Cincinnati or something like that. Um, some 80s one that was a little before my time, but that I've heard good things about. Anyways, that's that's Dudley Do-Right.
1: Your mileage is going to vary depending on how offended you are by the Native American portrayals. Yeah, that was a little off, yeah. Like, and it ends with the gag that they say, we're not really Indians. Did you think we were? And it's like, well, what what's going on here? Is this an attempt to make this okay? I don't know. Doing the thing where you... You lampshade it, and now... Exactly. You kind of cut
0: through the tension, the red tape, or maybe you don't. A a lot of movies try this, or TV shows have tried this through the years, where, like, they depict something in a racist way, and they, like, wink at it, you know? It's like, oh, we know this is over-the-top and ridiculous but also just racist, but it doesn't really make it funny just because you acknowledge that it is such. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. But like,
1: they're also some legitimately good dancers.
0: Like they got two oh,
1: yeah. huge music numbers
0: and they were pretty good
1: comparatively.
0: Yeah. And now, Brian, we've reached the moment of this podcast where we we must. We have no choice but to discuss George of the Jungle 2.
1: Oh, uh, we've tr- we've treaded water out past the continental shelf. Now we're going to plunge into the abyss. This movie came out in 2003. Six years, six years passed between George of the Jungle 1 and George of the Jungle 2. That's like between Frozen and Frozen 2, a Wreck at Ralph and Ralph breaks the internet. And I don't think there was
0: as much goodwill built up behind George of the Jungle 1 as Frozen or Wreck at Ralph, Dan. Probably not, no. I guess this was the era when Disney was churning out the direct-to-video sequels. I think this was direct-to-video. I don't know for sure. Yes, it was. Okay. This director, David Grossman, based on my preliminary research, his other credits was that he directed a couple of episodes of Desperate Housewives. So not exactly a long pedigree. But let's not bury the lead. They recast George. No Brandon Fraser. He's gone. (laughs) So... Like, debatably, Dudley Do-Right is more of a sequel. Right. And the guy that they chose to replace him, Christopher Showerman? You're going to have to convince me that this is a real human being and not just an automaton.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're like
0: in similar territory to
1: Chez Starbuck from 13th year. <laughs> I mean, same initials even, CS. Yeah. But here is Christopher Showerman. And... <laughs> He's just a hunk. Like, yeah. He does have a significantly better physique than Brendan Fraser. I mean, this guy is jacked. He could be in a calendar. He is very muscular. But that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Ursula is played by Julie Benz, who I also have not heard of. Right. So not only George was recast, everyone in the movie save for one person well, I guess two people, because one is a voice, was recast. Right. But I recognized the alternate Ursula and was trying to put it together, and about two-thirds of the way through the movie, I placed it: is She plays the girlfriend on Dexter, where, you know, uh, Michael C. Hall as Dexter is a serial killer, and... The quirk is that he's trying to exist in day-to-day life, and so he actually does have, like, a romantic relationship going on, and he's trying to relate to people despite not having emotions,
0: and she's the girlfriend. Gotcha. I'm hoping that her performance on Dexter was brought more to the table than than her Ursula Stanhope. Marginally. But, spoilers, she doesn't make it all the way through the show. Ah, uh, bummer. George Jr., so at the end of George One. We saw that he had a baby in a flash forward. Uh, and then here w- we are meeting that that he's like five or six years old or something, maybe four. I don't know. Played by Angus T. Jones, who you might know as the half man from Two and a Half Men. Oh, interesting.
1: I did recognize him from something. Now that you say that, I can recognize it. But this kid is tubby for being raised in the
0: jungle. Yeah. What, where was his source of protein and fat, that he was getting those chubby cheeks. I don't know. But then, okay, so it's one thing if you just recast everyone, but they brought back Thomas Hayden Church as Lyle, who I guess he's back in society despite being in an African prison. I guess he escaped from the African prison, so he wasn't in that anymore at the end of George II. But here he is. We have him. And then John Cleese returns, too as Ape. Yeah, easier
1: to get somebody back as a voice. That doesn't take a whole lot of commitment, but this is only the second franchise I've ever seen where you can justify making a sequel when the villain and only the villain is willing to return. The other example is Darkman, which originally starred Liam Neeson, and he doesn't come back for the sequel, but whoever played the the villain is like, yeah, I'm in. And so they made Two and three. That case was a little worse because I think he died in the first
0: movie. And then in the second one, they're like, no, he didn't. (laughs) So, Brian, this is one of the most insane movies that I've ever seen. It's just bananas. Okay. It's so weird. I'm
1: glad I'm not alone because there were moments when I had to, like, argue with myself whether I was really seeing it.
0: (laughs) Is this a thing that existed? Like, all these things that happened. I gotta admit, this... Went into the territory of like uh, Shark Boy and Lava Girl, where its badness like approached the avant garde. In that case, it was like aggressively ugly visuals, but here it's just the insanity of the plot, and to the extent you could even call it a plot, and just like how aware it is that there's like literally no charisma in any of these of the cast, and the stuff that's happening makes no sense. And it's just a worse version of everything in the first. And that's like lampshaded and not hidden at all.
1: Right. It's really, really weird. It is on Disney Plus if you want to go watch it. Like this was actually put out by Disney. But worth noting, I think I don't I didn't see Disney listed anywhere in the credits. (laughs) Like this was made by some other studio under the Disney umbrella.
0: Just a bizarre movie. And it actually, it had me thinking a little bit. I was reflecting recently on the movie Troll 2 for reasons totally unrelated to this podcast, but it made me realize that I don't enjoy the experience of watching bad movies unless they're also weird movies. And Troll 2 fits that descriptor. And I, this movie fits that descriptor too, I would say. It is bad, but it is also very weird. And that like that's when you get into the so bad it's good entertainment level for me. Yeah. So the approximate outline of the plot to the extent that there is a plot is George is happily married to Ursula, they have George Jr. I guess he's also the king of the jungle. Was this role established in George 1? I'm not sure. I thought he was just a dude. I don't think they talked much about it. Yeah. But now he's like the king. He like resolves dispute and Lyle and Ursula's mom Beatrice are not happy that Ursula is out here in the wilderness and they have the scheme to get Ursula to come back to San Francisco and marry Lyle. And eventually they come to the jungle and they convince Ursula to come back. Although they go to Las Vegas for some reason, not San Francisco, but remember ape is in Las Vegas. So we get to cross paths with him. Things get even weirder from here. Like once they get there, Beatrice, the mom, hires a hypnotist and like straight up does the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind lacuna thing on Ursula to get George out of her brain. Like she just doesn't know that George exists anymore after this. This is cruel. This is like this should be illegal. How is this hypnotist practicing?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be fair, things can be illegal and people still
0: do them. But I guess that's true.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't really trust a carnival hypnotist to be the most morally upstanding individual.
0: (laughs) I I also am not sure I would trust that kind of hypnotist to be doing, like, getting in the brain of my daughter if I'm, like, a millionaire.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you saw Eternal Sunshine. Those people were not the most
0: highly trained either. That's true. There's a thread where Ape has a gambling addiction and... He also owns the deed to Ape Mountain. I guess you can have the deed to a mountain in Africa. And he loses it to Lyle in a, a round of poker. Yeah. And also
1: at this poker game is the country singer who sings the Gambler song. Yeah. Kenny Rogers. Yeah. Kenny Rogers is there. Also, Elvis is there too. Okay. Uh, just Elvis. Why not? Well, and, and Elvis, because I'm sure there's countless Elvises in Vegas. True. But... I think this playing cards with Kenny Rogers as he constantly sings and everybody gets tired of it has
0: literally been recreated as a Geico ad. <laughs> you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold em. And he even sings that line multiple times. Right. Yeah. And to the point that they eventually tape his mouth over. Right. Um, there's this plot thread where because George is The king of the jungle and he leaves at some point a character who is literally named mean lion who is a mean lion elmo's dad is elmo's dad mean lion is a mean lion takes over the the king of the jungle role and he's voiced by michael clark duncan out of left field yeah from green
1: mile among other things so one of the early plot summary sentences from Wikipedia for this film is George finds himself hard-pressed to fulfill the roles of Jungle King, father, and husband. George's stress level increases when the mean lion challenges him for leadership of the jungle. There you go. That's the premise of this film. I ask Dan in his role as a father, husband, homeowner, has he dealt with this stress? Have you ever been <laughs> challenged
0: by the mean lion, <laughs> The The mean lion has never come to my door and said, I, I am now you. I'm taking over your life. No, that's never happened to me. And then at the end of the movie, and by the way, we've just described the whole plot of this 90-minute movie. George kisses Ursula again. Who, by the way, George just kind of accepted that Ursula like didn't know he existed anymore. But anyways, he kisses her and she gets her memory back. It's like a, a Wally-Eve-Spark type situation. And... They do indeed live happily ever after, but with some new life balance because George was spending too much time being king of the jungle, even though we didn't even know he was that prior to the start of this movie. Okay, so that's the plot. I just want to talk about some of the scenes that happen in this film. Yes, let's. So, first of all, the whole narrator shtick is just up to 11, just through the, the roof. The narrator is basically the main character of this movie. And it starts from the beginning where he we meet George of the jungle and the narrator is like, this is not Dan talking. This is the narrator talking. This is what the narrator said. Yes. And George is not Brendan Fraser. He was a cheaper actor because we couldn't afford Brendan Fraser anymore. Just like out of the gate doing this uh, self-deprecation meta joke and also like doing stabs at the new star, like no making no butts about how this guy's just a dollar store version of Brendan Fraser, who doesn't bring very much to the table
1: and they make that joke like 10 times yeah of brendan fraser did this
0: but now george do this christopher showerman not catching any breaks in the script of this i wonder if he was cast because he was bad yeah we wrote him (laughs) as bad i guess we gotta hire someone bad (laughs) hey christopher showerman how you doing today
1: Take a look at Christopher Showerman's filmography. He's been in, like,
0: Asylum Pictures releases. He did direct a movie that was not picked up for distribution in 2015. A musical, it seemed, or at least a music-themed movie. I am curious about. I want to see what, what this guy did with as a director. We got to do Christopher Showerman month. <laughs> I don't even think you could do a whole month. We just watch this movie every week, Brian. Like the the worst podcast in the world or whatever that is called.
1: I'm not ready for that. I'm not going to sign off on that.
0: We talked about Elvis is there playing poker, Kenny Rogers. Um, there's like a scene where the mother-in-law is in the jungle and one of the tour guides just gets annoyed with her and like straight up murders her, like throws her off the bridge. And then the narrator like rewinds it and said, just kidding, that didn't happen. Got murder going on here just in the middle of our our... George of the Jungle. When Mean Lion takes center stage, they do this little shtick where he, like, tries to corral the animals on his side, and he, like, walks up to a rock to do it, and then it, like, zooms out, and it's Pride Rock from The Lion King, like, a fairly elaborate mise-en-scene recreation of the the iconic Pride Rock lifting up of Zimpa scene. Did you just say Zimpa. I said Zimba, but my mouth kind of caught, so the B turned to a P, and I said Z instead of S, so I guess I did. Zimpa. Well, as long as we're being upfront about that.
1: But, yeah, let's continue this laundry list of
0: strange things. Charlie's angels are in there for some reason.
1: So, okay, I think I have a theory for why they're here. But, yeah, Lyle has these, like, bodyguard action women. And there are multiple nods to Charlie's Angels. And I can only think this is because Charlie's Angels was huge around this time. Charlie's Angels 1 came out in 2000. Charlie's Angels 2 came out in 2003, the same year as George of the Jungle 2. So
0: it was timely for a short window of time. There's a gag where George wants to teach his son how to vine swing like him, but the son isn't interested in vine swinging. He's only interested in tree surfing. And I was like, what is I don't know what this is. There's enough things that that one didn't really nag me too much. There's just like enough weird shit going on in this movie that the tree surfing thing didn't bug me. But then later they showed tree surfing and... It's just the the thing they do in Tarzan, that Tarzan does. Right, the 1999 Disney Tarzan, because obviously late
1: 90s is when the X Games was big, so you don't have Tarzan swinging around, you have
0: Tarzan skateboarding through the trees. Right, and it looks just like it. They have the whole thing where there's like the branches that go in a weird pattern and his feet kind of do it, like recreated that. There's a thing where Shep, so that's the, the elephant slash dog character, By the way, the animals here, they didn't even bother whatsoever with this mix of animatronic and monkeys in a suit and puppets and stuff. It's just all shitty CGI. It's 100% terrible
1: CGI. That was the wording I was going to use. And I think they maybe had one ape suit that might get traded off between a couple of the gorillas. But most of the time, it's CGI even on them. So a big letdown. Shep looks much worse. Yeah. Despite having six years.
0: But I guess a lower budget, is you, it's got to be said. Anyways, there's a scene where he has to run and the narrator's like, oh, and he's wearing New Balance shoes. And it zooms in on the New Balance shoes. So it's like lampshading the product placement, which I think in the first George of the Jungle, he pulls up Nikes. So it's like making fun of that. Right. There's a lot of making fun of the first George of the Jungle in this. To be fair, have you ever seen The Crudes? No. Okay, so this is a
1: DreamWorks movie that's about cavemen, and it's like a Neanderthal family that's survived longer than a lot of the other Neanderthals in the area, and it's because they, like, adhere very strictly to tradition, but then they meet a homo sapiens, a human, and what's new and innovative about the human that portends their eventual evolutionary success is that humans can invent things. And the human invents shoes. And before then, I never really thought about how game-breaking shoes are. Like, shoes help so much. Having shoes, you can walk around in places that you couldn't previously walk around. And that just instantly gives you a leg up over
0: basically every other animal. Yeah, it, it opens up the world, yeah. I do know there was a big fad around 10 or 15 years ago, barefooting, where you would be a runner, but you just wouldn't wear shoes. You would run barefoot. And the idea is you would get like really, really thick calluses on your feet so that it was it was almost like a layer of leather on your feet. So I think probably if you never wore shoes, you would like get some resistance. But I think you're right. I think it's better to have shoes than than to have bare feet. Just a couple other insane things. I can't stress enough how insane this movie is. And like, even just saying them out loud, it doesn't replicate the experience of seeing this on a screen as a thing that exists in front of you.
1: Yeah, so there's a couple more. Do you
0: have some? I I have
1: some, but why don't you toss in a couple here, Brian? All right, so something that stuck out to me is there's a moment when the narrator says, and Beatrice, that's the mother-in-law, grinned like a Cheshire cat, like her scheme is going well. But when he says this, Her mouth distends into this big cartoon grin. She actually grows whiskers. And it's just this CGI nightmare that comes out of nowhere. I was really not expecting it. It's truly horrifying. Then another moment is George is talking to the Tuki Tuki bird, like he's bringing the bird up to speed about all this tension he's been feeling in his life lately, because he can't strike a good work-life balance. (laughs) living in the jungle yeah so he's talking to the Tuki tookie bird in this tookie tookie language uh as i gave a little snippet of before with the ee ee ah ah tookie tookie but it goes on and on and then because the joke is that it's going on and on they speed it up but even once they speed it up it continues to go on way too long like (laughs) this gag is like 20 seconds long And 20 seconds doesn't sound very long, but when you've got Chris Showerman going, (laughs) for 20
0: seconds, it's an eternity. That's pretty good, yeah. A couple more of mine. So I mentioned that George kissing Ursula like brings her memory back. So apparently this, this whole hypnosis thing, there was like a whole crowd that went through the hypnosis. It wasn't just... Ursula, it was a bunch of her friends, too. Okay, so what I'll say about this, it actually fixes one of the plot holes we pointed
1: out from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, because we said, wouldn't the friends remember the person who got cut out, and wouldn't that cause problems? So here they actually addressed it and had the hypnotist hypnotize all the friends, too.
0: Oh, everybody gets the lacuna. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But the end result of this is when George brings Ursula's memory back. He needs to bring back everyone's memory. So he's just running around kissing all the characters. It's like an assembly line. They (laughs) file them through. And like a weird bit where one particular friend is like really horny for George. And he's like, no, I'm with Ursula. So she then like goes up to one of the monkeys in a monkey suit and like gets all close and personal with him. Just taking that, that to the outer limit of good taste, I would say there's a scene where i don't even remember why but george has to become really articulate so like he drops the whole thing where he talks in the third person i think this might have been like an actual thing i didn't recognize it did you brian
1: yeah so it's the saint crispin's day speech from henry v by shakespeare okay gentlemen of england now abed, will count themselves ill used to say they were not here to stand with us upon St. Crispin's Day. It's the the speech before the Battle of Agincourt.
0: Gotcha. I don't know why it's here, <laughs> but that's what it is. Because why not, Brian? Okay, so then the the end of the movie, the movie hasn't done anything with the Thomas Hayden Church character, with Lyle. So he's still around. And the way the movie gets around this is the narrator literally descends from the clouds like God... His arm reaching down and he grabs Thomas Hayden Church in like a wedgie and pulls him up to the sky. The logical conclusion to me being that Lyle was just straight up murdered by the narrator, vengeful deity. Right. He was
1: carried away to heaven like Elijah and Lyle walked with God.
0: (laughs) Not where I thought this would go. No. And then so now the movie's done, but now we have like a bunch of fake bloopers like from the toy stories. But they're just all really weird. Like one is the birds are flying, including Tuki Tuki. And then Shep, the elephant, is just flying with them for some reason. Oh, and Tuki Tuki. And one of them is just speaking in complete sentences instead of his uh-uh, Tuki Tuki thing. And then at the very end, it gets to the credits. Brian, I don't know if you watched all the way to the end of the credits. No, this was news to me. In the last 30 seconds, the narrator comes back. Like, we're literally in the credits where it's, like, second bonus script. The narrator comes back, and he's like, everyone got a happy ending, but me? Why does the narrator never get a happy ending? And then a female voice hops on and says, I'm the narrator from Mulan, and that's basically it. And so I guess the... Oh, and she, like, kind of woos him, and he's like, well, we can take care of ourselves together or something like that, but the idea being that... The narrator found another narrator love. But does Mulan even have a narrator, Brian? I don't think so. I mean, (laughs)
1: we've both seen Mulan many times. I think we would remember. And it doesn't come to mind for me.
0: So I was like, what the hell is this? And yeah, man.
1: Also, Mulan was already five years old by the time this movie came along. So (laughs) I don't know. I wonder how long this thing sat in development hell. Probably ever since the first one came out. They were kicking this around. I don't know. Yeah. That's George of the Jungle 2.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. And there was a kangaroo that just showed up in one scene and then hung around the rest of the movie. Why did a kangaroo appear?
1: All right. So Kangaroo Jack also came out in 2003, like Charlie's Angels too. So that's my theory. Just like a
0: pop culture reference for the time. Yeah. My theory, the best theory I had, which maybe was giving the movie too much credit, is it was making fun of the fact that the animals in Africa are not actually from Africa. And so it's like just taking that to its ridiculous extreme that now there's a kangaroo there for no obvious reason. Gotcha. Any other good things, not so good things? I I mean, like I didn't have any distinct good things. Except just the the sheer insanity of it just made it, like, a far more fascinating watch than I possibly could have expected. Right.
1: Yeah. Not a lot of good things to share, other than it gives us some fodder for
0: discussion. So, Brian, here's my, real quick, my pitch for George of the Jungle 3. All right. So, we're we're gonna pick back up In the Jungle, except there are two Georges and they don't know that the other Georges exist. We're going to cast both Brendan Fraser in his Renaissance and Christopher Showerman. I can tell you, I'm confident he's not up to anything. He would take a gig. And they like, we're going to just bring the meta to the nth degree. They're like, why are there two Georges? And then the villain this time is the narrator and they have to figure out how to defeat the narrator who is ruining all of their lives with his storytelling. And that's as far as I got. I don't know what the conclusion is, but that—that's my my premise for George of the Jungle Three is like j- just keep amping up the. Uh, we're doing a. Oh, we're only partially doing a coherent movie here. Oh man, I see
1: potential here. We got this George of the Jungle No Way Home thing going on. Oh yeah, like a multiverse type thing almost. Yeah, a multiverse, and you tie in the whole J Ward. Adaptation universe. You can oh. have the George of the Jungle from the 2007 animated show. And of course, you're going to have Brendan Fraser in multiple roles because he's also Dudley Do Right. Yeah, yeah. This is where we pull in the 2000 Rocky and Bullwinkle movie that we didn't watch this week where they had
0: Robert De Niro in it as fearless leader. Maybe you could just make it the Fraser verse. So just bring in every Brendan Fraser character too. Oh. You might be onto something there. Like The Mummy, too, or and I don't know what else he was in. He was in some, like, stoner comedy, too. I feel like you could just bring it all... Yeah, all the different Brendan Fraser characters. Maybe do some de-aging CGI on him.
1: Yeah, this, this all, had me almost wanting to do a Fraser
0: month. <laughs> there are worse months you
1: could do. <laughs> are we ready to
0: tell the listeners whether it's good? For example, we could do a Christopher Showerman month, like you said. That would be worse than a Brendan <laughs> Fraser month. But... Yeah, I think I think we're ready to declare whether these movies are good, Brian. This has been fun, but we we should level some mercy upon our listeners.
1: So is it good is the time of the episode when we level our ratings on our selected films and we rate them on a scale with eight points ranging from one, which we've termed very not good up to eight. Our masterpiece rating. We call it tour de Good. Don't worry, we're not going to be anywhere near our eights this episode. So for me, George of the Jungle One is an amiable film. I didn't actively dislike it. I'm going to stick it with a three out of eight, a not not good. There were moments where I was charmed, but it wasn't the lion's share of the film. It's like occasionally something would strike me and and give me some feel good chemicals. Not, Not a whole lot of the time. Like, I I did like the chemistry between the romantic leads. George of the Jungle is a likable fellow when he's portrayed by Brendan Fraser. There were some gags. I I liked how much mileage they got out of the George of the Jungle theme song, if not how much they tried to get out of the
0: tree-crashing gag. And that's where I'm at. What about you, Dan? I'm pretty close to you. I think we had similar things we liked and didn't like. Um, I also have the nostalgia factor. I watched this one multiple times as a kid and just kind of bringing me back to an earlier earlier era of blockbusters. Um, and I, it's just a breezy, charming movie. It's, it's fun to watch. It doesn't challenge you at all, but it doesn't wear out its welcome. It's got too many childish poop jokes and crashing into trees. I'm right on the fence between a three and a four. I'm going to just give it a gentle good-ish. That's our four out of eight rating. Good-ish. So, you know, I don't know. It's it's uh there's some warmth to how I feel about this film that brings it up to the that middle line of, of not quite good, but enough that I would consider watching it again with my kids, you know. It's a good time. And it's got that one song that always gets stuck in my head. Not the George the Jungle theme, the the one that they play for the romance, but George the Jungle theme gets stuck in my head too. So um and I, I really like how we saw Both George in the city and Ursula in the jungle. I thought that was a good little mirror. That's my my rating for George of the Jungle 1997. On to Dudley Do-Right 1999. Brian, is Dudley Do-Right good? Dudley Do-Right, I would also
1: not call a good movie. It was very meandering. I was amazed when you said it was only 77 minutes long. It feels longer than that to me. Like, it just wandered around a lot Kudos to Alfred Molina as Stanley Whiplash. He genuinely seems like he's having fun. I love a good mustache twirling villain, but there's just not a whole lot of meat here. I'm giving this one a two out of eight, which gets our label not good officially. I don't know. Not much to write home about. Arguably very culturally insensitive at times, which is going to bother some people more than others, but it's just an oddity. It's a relic. What an odd occurrence. I'm glad Brendan Fraser is back, though. What do you think, Dan?
0: For me, this is the bad kind of what the hell am I watching right now type of movie. It's like it doesn't make sense, but it's also not very interesting. And man, I was this close to giving it a one. Um, I, I decided I didn't actively disdain it enough to give it a one. And I liked some of the set pieces and dance numbers and I liked Melina on screen, and it's it's not a good movie though. It's not good. It's two out of eight. E- easy peasy. Uh, a low two. Really wasn't working for me. No, no, even the fact that I'd seen it before, no, no nostalgia carryover. So, and so now we get to George of the Jungle two, two thousand three. Brian, is George of the Jungle two good? George of the Jungle two is
1: a nightmare. It's like a mirage. Like, can you even trust your eyes when this is playing in front of your face? One good thing, I guess, they did do a couple more permutations of the George of the Jungle theme. We got the George of the Jungle theme played by a German oompa band in this film. (laughs) But, yeah, I don't know. I guess I would more likely write home about this film... Like, uh, I would send a postcard, I saw George of the Jungle (laughs) 2, just to, like, leave testament that I experienced it, rather than Dudley Do-Right. But I give this one a 1 out of 8. Very not good. It's like Max Magician territory, almost. But then you're staggered by the fact that a big studio was involved, at
0: least in distribution. Very strange. What do you think, Dan? So if Dudley do is the bad version of what the hell am I watching, then this is the good version of what the hell am I watching, or maybe not good version, but the interesting version of what the hell am I watching. And uh, I mean, compared to Max Magician, which is the one I was thinking about when I was trying to come up with the rating for this, like Max Magician is aggressively boring for 85% of its runtime and then only like weird, bad for that last 15% but mostly just really boring. This is not ever really boring. This is like genuinely gobsmackingly bizarre for its entire 90 minute runtime. And you know, I don't don't have a proper calibration for like what one should do on the rating scale for the is it good rating for so bad it's good. It's like, it's almost like you gotta pull out a different metric. It's like you've plummeted through the ground of the one we're past the one now we've we've, it's you've gone back it's like you're in the underworld now and so now the worse you get the better it gets you know it's like an underflow in computer
1: science terms like there's some old arcade games where like if you
0: get attacked by a villain while you're in the instant of dying you get infinite lives right or like how in civilization one gandhi's Aggression modifier was at zero. So if you managed to like get a bonus peaceful point, his zero aggression would go down and flip to 255, which is the highest possible score. And he would become like a warlord in Civilization 1. That's where I am with George of the Jungle 2 is like, this is the equivalent of Gandhi dropping nukes on Abraham Lincoln in Civilization 1. Just thinking about it in terms of how excited am I to watch this movie relative to other movies it is actually way up there like i'm legitimately excited to see if when i watch this again if it feels as strange and hallucinatory as it did the first time i'm gonna give this a good brian i'm gonna give this a five out of eight because it was a good (laughs) movie watching experience for me and it took some restraint not to go higher than that because (laughs) i was smiling and laughing my ass off this whole time higher than its predecessor wow yes I legitimately got more out of watching George of the Jungle 2 than George of the Jungle 1. And I have no qualms about saying that. All right. I'm glad it worked for you. I mean, it's not a better made movie, but it's, <laughs> it's a movie watching experience.
1: I might have to revisit. It is unlike most other movies I've ever
0: seen. <laughs> Then again, like, I also don't think a one out of eight is the wrong rating. I'm not... It's it's different from as I was moving ahead, occasionally I saw brief glimpses of beauty where, like, we arrived at very different conclusions. I think here we arrived at the same conclusion, but our takeaway from that via is a good rating was entirely different.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I have different feelings about this than other things I've given a one too, like... There's more substance here than, like, Amazing World of Ghosts. Although, actually, I give that a good rating. You gave it the one. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah.
0: One is a, an erratic rating for us to give. It doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. So maybe this is, like, on our spreadsheet 5 slash 1 for me or something like that. Because that really feels like what it should be. But anyways, that's George of the Jungle 2. Just a... Discovery, a revelation, to use a phrase you use for me.
1: Yes, I'm glad that we can share it with you listeners. You know, sometimes we put on like a best picture winner and maybe you would be likely to stumble across that into your day-to-day life. I feel more accomplishment when we can steer you
0: towards one. And even if you don't watch it, you at least become aware of it. So Brian, what are we going to be watching next week and talking about on the goods? I decided that even if not a full month, I wanted to keep
1: the Brendan Fraser spree rolling. And so I have selected another Brendan Fraser film from around this same time. It is Bedazzled from 2000. Are you familiar with this one? Very vaguely. All right. So it's a Faustian pact story where he sells his soul to the devil for three wishes. And at least in this one, the devil is a sexy lady. It's a remake. So I'm also going to put on the table the original from 1967, a British film also called Bedazzled.
0: Whoa. Okay. That should be fun. Yeah, so that's my pick. I
1: have seen the Brendan Fraser one before, but it's been a long time. I've never seen the original, and I'm
0: curious to talk about it. Bedazzled and Bedazzled. Very cool. All right, Brian. Well, I'm looking forward to that. All right. It's been fun. It's been weird. Thank you for... For talking George of the Jungle with me, delving into the depths of cinema that I didn't know that we were going to when I signed these films. So
1: it's been interesting. It's been not
0: not good. <laughs> Fair enough. And listeners, thank you for for joining us as always. And we'll catch you next week. Tune in next time. <laughs>